Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. I'm going to take just a second. Um, my book is out today. If you're looking for a job or you think you might want some uh, job market mobility, go check it out. It's called the Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. I'm planning on writing more Max Coder's Guides, so that's why it has a long title. But yeah, go check it out. It's $2.99 on Amazon today as we record this. I don't know where the price is going to end up, but it's probably going to go up and not down. So just putting that out there. We have a special guest this week, and that's Andrew Glass. Andrew, do you want to say hello? Hey, what's going on, guys? Nice to meet you and nice to be on the show. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So... You were telling us all kinds of interesting stuff about yourself before we got started. I think Guinness Book of World Records judge kind of came up. Do you want to just tell us who you are and maybe elaborate a little bit on this interesting stuff before we get on on the show? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm a Brooklyn-based Rubyist, proud Rubyist. I operate a small independent dev shop called Bang Equals out of Brooklyn. And yeah, in addition to that, I keep a lot of fun side hustles. I like the term as my enrichment jobs. I've been a ball person at the U.S. Open for five years. I travel around the country uh, judging Guinness World Records attempts as well. And uh, actually, in a few weeks, I'll be starting my new enrichment job as a balloon holder in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. So oh, wow! Know, in addition to, to keeping it weird with Ruby, I like to keep my interests varied. So how do you get that job, a balloon holder in the parade? That one, I just, you know, asked around and through a friend of a friend, met a, met a Macy's employee. Uh, luckily, I'll be on a very cool balloon, which is going to be from Yayao Kusama, the Japanese artist, who is actually going to have a balloon in the parade as part of their art feature this year. So uh, you can keep a lookout for that. Awesome. Now, how do you become a judge for the Guinness Book of World Records? <laughs> That's <laughs> what I want to know. Yeah, that's that's certainly the more interesting one. Yeah, so you know, I had a friend that was kind of doing PR for them in 2016, and she introduced me to the fact that they were looking for some freelance adjudicators to join their roster. And you know, I jumped on the opportunity. I feel like it's amazing to celebrate everyone's unique talents and skills and accomplishments. I've judged everything from the world's fastest juggler to the largest computer programming class, which was rad to the largest charcuterie board, to a whole bunch of various records. So, What's the worst thing that you've had to judge? <laughs> I can't get negative, so I, I don't even want to say worst, but I'll say the best, which was um, actually two weeks ago. It was on the NFL Network, and it was a man by the name of Anthony Robles, who I wrestled in high school, so I've been following this guy. He was an NCAA wrestling champion. He overcame being born with one leg to be an NCAA wrestling champion. And oh, wow. uh, now he goes around as an inspirational speaker and um, also doing promotional 
events for veterans, and he attempted the record for most pull-ups in a minute while wearing a 40-pound backpack. And unfortunately, he was too short of the record, which was you know sad to see, but I was so impressed with his resolve and spirit afterwards, and he vowed to break the record in the future. So um, that's why I would just say it as my favorite. Also, the most recent one I've done, but definitely the most the more inspirational one I've done, even in failure to break the record. So that's cool. Yeah, that's really cool. Great. So uh, we brought you on to talk about your 2018 RailsConf talk, human powered rails, automated crowdsourcing, and your Ruby on Rails app. And yeah, I mean, if you watch the talk, you kind of know what it's about. But do you want to kind of give us the elevator pitch for this talk so that the folks who haven't seen it get an idea of what we're talking about here? Yeah, for sure. So it's all about using Amazon Mechanical Turk, which is kind of like an underused and, and actually quite controversial AWS service. And what Amazon Mechanical Turk lets you do is post tasks and put them at a certain price point. And then people will kind of go on, take the tasks, and then complete them. The example I used at uh, RailsConf, which was in Pittsburgh, was to show a picture of a sandwich and say, does this sandwich have French fries in it? Because if you guys are of Pittsburgh, there's some restaurants out there, I believe Pramonti Brothers, that put French fries in sandwiches. So that was kind of my pitch to it. So theoretically, I could say, okay, here's a task. Look at three pictures of sandwiches and let me know if there are French fries in any of them. And I will pay you X amount of money to do that task. And then workers who are on this active platform will go on, take a task and complete it. That's interesting. It's, it's interesting to me too, just in the sense that we're starting up a machine learning show. And this would be a really interesting way of essentially getting a data set together and then validating the results from the AI. Yeah, 100%. Like that's a big use case for how people are using Turk. But yeah, I mean, essentially people are, are using it for, you know, tasks that can't be done with machine learning yet or to train machine learning algorithms. But what I go into the talk is just kind of like how it is, what it is, how it's used, and then how we could also use Ruby to automate the process using what I've kind of coined as like a human-powered API. And then some of just the in and outs of how I've constructed those in the past. And then also again with some of the ramifications of Turk as it's been in used in pop culture and in some controversies as well. Gotcha. So what do you use it for then? I mean, you, you gave us an example, but how do you build it into an app so that you use it in the app? Yeah, sure. So it's actually funny. Um, my use of Turk actually kind of dates with my story of how I got involved in software development. Pre my days as a developer, I was working at Living Social as a data quality analyst, which uh, was really a glorified data entry position, looking at our leads to find small businesses to work with. And what we're actually doing manually through CSV uploads was sending data to Turk and then having workers, you know, maybe find the phone number of a business or find the hours of a business or find the pricing of a specific service. So with my mentor at the time, Ross, you know, we were doing that. Then, you know, Lo and behold, Living Social ran Hungry Academy, which was, um, you know, the now Turing School run by Jeff Casimir, which turned me into a Rubyist, which was amazing. And years later, actually, Ross and I kind of started a little side hustle doing some like lead generation stuff. So I actually built a little nifty app that would um, automatically process the information in Turk. So what we were using it for was the same thing we were using it for back in the day, doing lead qualification or lead enrichment. 
and also got into a little bit of photo and video processing stuff and tagging stuff. So having people watch videos and stop it and start them at certain points, having people look at photos and video and having them tag it or determine certain qualities or features about it. Very cool. So I can see that it seems like most of it's kind of visual and then identifying certain things about, you know, these kinds of results and things like that. Are there other uses or is that kind of the primary one where it's, it's sort of, we don't have machines that do these things yet. So it's kind of the human stuff, right? Where I just look at it and I know it's whatever it is. Whereas a computer, you have to train an AI model and even that might have false positives or negatives. Yeah, exactly. It's very interesting because someone on Turk who I don't know, and again, I'm you know not very active in this anymore whatsoever, but there are scores of different types of tasks, but there seems to almost always be some task to record items from a picture of a shopping receipt, which, you know, not an OCR expert, but I would imagine, you know, OCR is pretty advanced enough to pick up print and type, but that seems to be a common task. And exactly as you just said, like human powered stuff. So like, I think going through video and identifying specific things, category, taxonomy stuff where it's like, okay, we want you to categorize a certain business or item, you know, sentiment analysis of different text or an image, image tagging. It's also kind of an interesting one. So yeah, some of, some of these stuffs that some of these things that uh, machine learning can't really handle yet, although it seems like it'll be, uh, you know, sooner rather than later that machine learning can, if not already. So it's definitely an interesting, interesting place that you see a lot of tasks on. But I mean, if anyone goes and, and checks out Turk as a worker, you can kind of see like the, the scores of different varieties of tasks that are available. Interesting. So if you wanted to submit something to Mechanical Turk, I'm assuming that you can go, just log into the AWS console and submit it, right? But yep. I'm assuming you're doing it programmatically, right? Yeah. So uh, actually in the talk, I kind of go through and I say, okay, like this is how you can do it non-programmatically. You can create a template for a task. There are a bunch of pre-written ones there already. Um, Consider it just like an HTML form, which is expecting some inputs. You can upload a CSV. It'll assign all the tasks out and it'll send you the results back in a CSV. But that is correct. I'm doing it programmatically. Um, And I built this, you know, as we do as developers, we we build on each other's stuff. So obviously, to credit the people who whose stuff I've uh, built my software on, which was um, I believe R Turk and another application called Turkey, which integrated it with uh, Ruby on Rails. But yeah, I essentially built you know programmatic forms, which Amazon Mechanical Turk essentially lets you iframe into what a Turk worker sees, and then you get the information processed. Mm-hmm. So I find a lot of this pretty interesting because I've messed around with uh, Google Cloud Platform's Dictation API. I've messed around with the Azure speech-to-text and then also the AWS Transcribe. And my purpose for doing this was to create closed captions for my Drift and Ruby videos. And before, I was doing it all manually and that is a huge undertaking task. So I use the AI, which would take my audio clip from the video and it would transcribe it for me. And I found that it typically has about a 80 to 85% accuracy. 
So some training is definitely needed, which I haven't bothered doing yet. And I've actually stopped doing the closed captions just because it's such a time sink. So once I get these transcribed results, I think it'd be really cool to send that up to Turk to have someone just modify them a bit and then verify and then increase the number of hits just so I'm increasing the accuracy a bit. So the work that one person does on these hits, is it then going to pass on to another person to verify their results? Or are they working independently to solve the same problem? Well, you can do it different ways. And that's kind of where it's really interesting with, you know, using it in an automated fashion as opposed to just kind of like CSV uploads. First thing, yes, like Turk is built to send it to multiple people just to kind of like confirm results. So if I were asking, does the sandwich have French fries in it? I would actually send that task to two people. And then I would say, okay, like, did both people agree, disagree, or do they do they not agree? Um, and based on that, maybe I'll send it back to Turk and get a third or fourth decision on it. And then that kind of lets you build out these workflows. So for some, let's say we had a the name of a business and I wanted to figure out, okay, like I want their phone number, their address, their website, and the cost of a sandwich at that business. If I'm able to get three of those five things in the first run with confidence, I could actually pool that business with some other businesses that I only got three or five, combine them and send it into like a second workflow where I'm asking for only those fields that I didn't confirm. So using that, you can sort of set up different stages of your, of your task. We're saying like, okay, like at first, we're going to ask two people to confirm, to transcribe this. And then maybe you ask a third person to confirm the, like to combine their work or confirm their work or something like that. So all that to say is that, um, you know, how you use it in different levels and stages with different people is, you know, as you're architecting your workflow, the power of using the APIs is really amazing. Yeah, so I guess it sounds like each person works on the individual problem. In that case, the two hits, they're not relying on each other's work. So you would have to send it back again and again to increase the overall accuracy of, in my case, the transcriptions. Yeah, correct. But I think I misunderstood your question. But but yeah, like essentially that you they're not relying on each other's work. However, if you set up a workflow in a certain way, they might see someone else's work upstream and uh, be touching it downstream, essentially. You mean like uh, for the transcription, you write the transcript and then it, the next person downstream like spot checks the transcript or something like that. Exactly. Um, and the other thing that's kind of cool with that is that you can actually also have qualified worker pools. Let's say you were looking for a transcription in French. I can make people take different tasks. Uh, I can calculate their scores on different tasks that I, I know the correct answers on. And I can say, okay, I've qualified this person as like part of my like French transcription team. So only he is allowed to, he or she is, excuse me, allowed to see this next task. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, I definitely think that there is a valid use case for it, but you had mentioned there's also some controversy around it. Would you mind speaking into the controversy around it? And is that still an issue? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I think uh, there's been a lot of articles written about this stuff. You know, one that I cite in the talk was specifically from the University of Colorado. And I think they talked about this because Turk, I believe, in the early 
2010s was getting used for a lot of like psychology studies and stuff like that. Just it was an easy way to get people to get money and fill out questions. But I think it really comes down to two things is just wages and like worker rights on getting stuff approved. So first thing, like, you know, the wages on there, uh, if you back out to an hourly wage are disgustingly low, you know, we made a point when we were on there to like pay people a fair amount and post tasks that were at a high price you know, that also have the added benefit is if you have a high price tasks, people will take them up quickly. So they'll get done faster. So we kind of weren't in a game just like feeding it tons of volume. I mean, we were feeding it pretty low volume at the end of the day anyways. I'm not, you know, I wasn't doing a crazy amount of tasks or anything like that. But um, yeah, people are making low wages on it. And also there's a lot of stuff that is in the power of the requester. So if someone wanted to be an unscrupulous individual and reject all work, you know, maybe Amazon might catch up to them at the end of the day, but it would hold the funds. It would prevent people from getting paid. They might be denied their pay for valid work. So um, there are a lot of things that go kind of unchecked in that system that I find a little repugnant. The New York Times actually last week, or actually this week, November 15th, an article by a man named Andy Newman just kind of details some of the uh, his experiences working with Turk. And it's pretty interesting. I'd recommend for everyone to check out the New York Times and check that out. That's really interesting. And yeah, it it bothers me that people may not get paid for their work. And I tend to err on the other side, right? I've hired people to do like trial runs on stuff. And if they do a bad job, they get paid for the one job and then I just don't hire them. I know that the situation with Mechanical Turk is at scale. It's a different set of issues and things like that. And some of these issues I also see as kind of hard to solve, right? Because if Mechanical Turk is trying to strike the balance between, you know, people kind of coming in and phoning it in and not really doing a good job versus, you know, people that come in and do a good job and then the company saying, you know, that's not something I want to pay for. I mean, there's a lot of room in there and I it, I see it as a really, really sticky problem. And yeah, I mean, I I agree with you t- to the extent that there are people ought to err on the side of you know holding up the agreement, right? You did the work, you get paid, and then if you get too many complaints, drop you out or something like that. But yeah, it's I don't know. I I can sit here and I can kind of armchair quarterback on a lot of this stuff, not knowing the full situation. But yeah, it really sounds crazy complicated to me as far as making everybody happy and treating everybody fairly. And so, from what you're saying, it sounds like they could do a much better job. Yeah, I, th- I think that sounds pretty generally fair. You know, it's interesting. I think that like MTurk was originally an Amazon internal tool for categorizing their own products. And then they've kind of like put it out there. I can't see this as being like such an incredible cash cow for AWS um, compared to obviously their other services. So it seems like, and if you look at the interface and other stuff like that, like it's, you know, been updated, I would say slowly over the past years that I've seen it use it. But um it maybe is not a high priority for them. I'm, I'm not sure. But the interesting thing I think with all of this is that I use Turk here, but it's really about automating a crowdsourcing flow. Turk is great because it's, you know, a worker pool that is scalable, that's on demand, and that, you know, you can pay for right off the bat. But, you know, I've talked to different companies after giving this talk and also in doing some of the other stuff that I've done of saying like, hey, like, we want to design a crowdsourcing workflow. We're supplying our own workers and stuff like that. So it's kind of interesting because a lot of the same sort of principles that I talk about of just like how to actually architect that workflow still apply 
even if Turk is not the end source of the people. This episode is sponsored by Cloud66. I have a Rails application and I was looking for a flexible product that takes care of deployment and gives full control of my application so I can focus on developing my code. I came across Cloud66 for Rails, which deploys your Rails application onto any cloud or server. At first, I thought it's like Capistrano, but then I realized it's way more than just deployment and gets you to scale servers, replicate and backup databases, protect your servers with firewalls, and much more. It acts as your in-house DevOps team to build, deploy, and maintain your Rails applications. It's really developer-friendly, and no wonder that companies like Bearmetrics, Glossies, CareerBuilder, Discovery Channel, and many development agencies and I are using Cloud66. You can try Cloud66 Rails for free and get $100 free credits with the code rubyrogues-19. That's rubyrogues-19 at cloud66.com. So I guess where I'm a little bit split on it, and I can definitely sympathize with the low-paid jobs that people might get on there and accomplish, especially if they say that, oh, this is just a five-minute task, we'll pay you 50 cents, and it ends up taking the person an hour to complete. Like legitimately, it took them a long time, much longer than the quoted time. So I think in those situations, that's horribly wrong. And I guess one way to combat that is to not only give accurate times and penalize the company if you have 10 hits for this particular task and you say it only takes five minutes, but it takes 90% of these people an hour to then have some kind of reasonable compensation there. But at the same time, on the flip side, think of sites like Stack Overflow, SuperUser, or any of the Stack Exchange network where you have people posting a question and you're essentially crowdsourcing people's ideas of what the answer is, whether it's programming related or anything else. And the people who buy into these platforms for answering the questions aren't getting paid anything. I would go on to SuperUser and Stack Overflow for a long time and just reply because it's fun. So I think for some people using the Turk, even if the pay is really low, that's not where they are getting their value. They're getting their value because they want to be helpful. They want to have whatever kind of meeting. But then also, it's just fun for them to do. It's fun for them to fill out surveys. And why not get some money back for doing it? Yeah, for sure. And like, you know, there are people on there that say, you know, this New York Times article that again just came out last week was saying, quoting uh, a woman who said that she quit her fast food job to make five to six dollars an hour on Turk, which again, I think is way, way too low of a wage, but that's, you know, maybe different sort of question, but saying that she enjoys the flexibility, she enjoys the autonomy of doing it. And that's fun. I mean, there's also people that do, you know, funny, as you were saying before, about transcription stuff, because those are actually some of the higher paying hits and people might make, you know, 10, $20, $30 an hour on some of those high paying hits that they're specifically sort of qualified via Turk to do. So I think it's definitely an interesting question that the, the New York Times article, you know, that person that came out said that he made 97 cents an hour, which I think is kind of an embarrassingly low wage that is not okay. But, you know, again, it's kind of in the perspective of all these different people that are doing it and whatnot. But, but yes, again, the, the other issue here is that um, the requesters have all this power to deny people, deny approval of work, essentially. 
Yeah, denial of approval of work is is where I really have the sticky point. If you're making 97 cents an hour, you know, most people will be able to find another job somewhere. I know that's not universally true, but it's generally true. And so if you if you're not making enough doing the job to make you satisfied with it, then go do something else. And if they can't find enough people to do that work at that, you know, whatever people are paying, then eventually they're going to have to raise the cost on that particular type of work. So if people are satisfied with it, they're okay getting paid that, then I think it's a marketplace that has some interesting implications all the way around. The, the flip side is, is, yeah, 97 cents does sound ridiculously low. But again, you know, if, if the person earning it is happy with that, they're willing to work for that. And you know, the, the market on Mechanical Turk, that's where it's at. That's what the work is worth. Then I don't know. I, I have a hard time saying, you know what, you shouldn't be working for 97 cents if people are willing to work for 97 cents. Yeah, I understand. Also, you know, it's also a global marketplace where people yeah. can be doing that in anywhere in the world. So somewhat hard for me to compare costs of Brooklyn yeah. to, you know, literally anywhere else on the globe. Yeah, but, I think I think that's the big thing. When we talk about wages in general, I mean a lot of it, you know, spills into politics and things. There's always more to the story. And then that's what makes it hard to kind of come to a like a complete consensus. A lot of times we can look at things and go, yeah, that doesn't make sense. But then you go dig into it deeper and it's like, well, there are these other things around it that explain it and they kind of do make sense. And so then you have to, you kind of have to just make a a judgment call on some of that. Uh Yeah. And again, um, you know, there has been some sort of push towards like Amazon publishing requester approval rates of tasks and stuff like that. And some move towards transparency, but yeah, again, I think, you know, I agree with you that that is kind of the larger issue here that looms. And, you know, if someone's doing like missing a task payment, that might be a dollar. Like how long do you expect them to, you know, fight Amazon or the requester yeah, if they're denying that payment? Enough. Like it kind of puts them in such a tough position on that stuff. But yeah, all I'll just say is that I think an important relevant thing to talk about while we're talking about Turk. Yes, yeah, yeah, crowdsourcing. And I think that kind of opens it up, just the points that y'all are saying. It's ripe for abuse by companies who intentionally mark something as a low payment, but then they also claim it's going to be a short time around. So I think to push back just a little bit to your point, Chuck, just glancing at the Times article, it looks like he went in with the intention of making a bit more of a reasonable wage. Okay. But the reality of it came back to 97 cents an hour. So I think the companies are abusing him in that case by misleading him of expectations versus reality. And I think that's where my issue and I think everyone's issue would be is that the companies are kind of being jerks in this case. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Like I said, I don't know the whole story and that's, that's why I worry yeah. a little bit. And so I'm talking in general principles instead of specific... For sure. You know, details. So... Yeah. You know, I think that while people do have a choice, I think also sometimes people get themselves in a poor situation for yeah. one reason or another. And then that's kind of what they are having to resort to. So honestly, when I was in college, I would have loved to have Mechanical Turk to just earn a few bucks on the side, especially when I didn't have a car and I could just do it from my dorm or whatever. But yeah, I think the overall idea, if companies come in with good intentions, you know, for example, I know that a 15-minute 
Drift and Ruby video is not 15 minutes worth of effort transcribing. Right. It's usually two to three times that. Yep. So if I just put my video and say, oh, it's only 15 minutes, so it should take you 15 minutes, they're going to have to pause, rewind, try to decipher my dialect and my language to be able to accurately do a good job. So I know it's going to be at least 45 minutes worth of effort, and it should be priced accordingly. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yep, I agree. I think this creates a, an interesting situation here too, just because like if... And I've hired transcriptionists in the past, but I just hired them directly, right? And yeah. so we'd work out what it was worth to do the transcript, and then they would do it. And this is more of a, I've got this work, and then you know there's a system that matches people up and, and has it done. And I think that's where a lot of this... I don't know what the right word is, but a lot, a lot of the problems arise in that space because it's anonymous. It's not... Anyway, it's definitely an interesting situation just because it's all matched up and things like that instead of just a direct hire where it's, you know, I agree to pay you $30 to transcribe my one-hour video or something. Yeah, for sure. I'd be interested to see some statistics of how many people who are trying to do Turk something like full-time are receiving a less than federal minimum wage. If it's a tiny percentage or if this is a growing problem in that kind of industry. Yeah, it'd definitely yeah. be interesting. I, I don't know if Amazon will ever release that those numbers. And I, I hesitate a little bit to obligate them to do it either because then it's, okay, we can obligate other companies to disclose what they're paying for their contract labor. And I don't know if I want to go there, but it would definitely be interesting to look at as the, at this marketplace and if there are any similar marketplaces, you know, how things come down there as well. Yeah, that's, that's all interesting. So does your app do the approvals automatically as well? Yeah, so I mean, I'm happy to get into more of the technical workflow stuff, which I think might be more interesting to a Rails-focused audience. But um, yeah, I mean, essentially, like I built it again on top of RTurk and on top of Turkey, a solidly named Jim. Um, <laughs> by Antics, Jim Jones, who is a, a Rubius I've, I've never met, but I appreciate his open source work, of course. And essentially what that does is it'll just give you some configs that essentially um, create these like, quote, turkey task and turkey imported assignment objects, um, which you can use and just like connect to your models. And, you know, with that, it makes it very easy to just iframe these tasks in, bring them in and import these assignments from Turk. You know, there are all these other flows you can use to approval. I truthfully did not really touch them too much. You know, you also get the time spent on an assignment. So you can sort of tell, like, if you're getting screwed over by a worker where they're not actually doing the task and just like clicking through, clicking the, you know, just like clicking the first thing. Our kind of policy on that was like pay them for work done and just ban them from using our tasks in the future because you could block specific workers. So that's kind of what we did on that. And yeah, I mean, you know, we set up this, you know, tasks. We set it up in kind of a way that anyone can, that in our admin system, you could have something that could have any types of inputs. So maybe it's a website or maybe it's a Twitter link or something like that. And, uh, you know, you could request any type of output. So maybe I'm requesting something numerically. Maybe I'm requesting something uh, yes or no. Maybe I'm suggesting like a multiple, like a multi-text or something like that. And yeah, we would go in, 
get the information, process it. I think the kind of interesting thing that we had to figure out was like, okay, like what logic are we going to use to like actually confirm if we're going to accept an answer or reject it, you know, for multiple, for multi-select or like true false, it was like a little bit easier for things like addresses, for things like numeric things where like, okay, how many French fries are on this sandwich? If one person says seven and one person says five, do we say it's six? Do we send it in for two more decisions on it? So figuring out that workflow, I think was kind of like the interesting part of our sort of like crowdsourcing platform. Awesome. So how hard is it to get rolling with this? I mean, let's say that I put together a product and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to use Mechanical Turk and pay somebody to, to do some of the work here. Yeah, I think it's pretty simple. I mean, I think in like, you know, a few days you can get set up. Again, if you wanted to get set up uh, in a non-automated fashion, you can use Turk, you know, just using their GUI. But if you want to set it up where it's like powering some information consistently on your website, so let's say like for every new user, or every batch of users, you want it to like validate some information or some data that you want it to process continually. Obviously, a little bit more complicated, but um, you know, I just tell the steps of how I kind of architected mine in the talk, which is pretty straightforward. I mean, I think it's a few days of work, but something that's like kind of fun and and interesting to do. But the AWS APIs are pretty helpful for that stuff. Our Turk is pretty helpful, and and Turkey was super helpful just in being able to set it up within the you know structure of an existing Rails app. And it looks like those gems, Turkey, like T-R-K-E-E, hasn't been modified in some time. And I know that their API looks like it's changed a little bit, but I did find that within the AWS SDK for Ruby, they do have some interfaces for mTurk. So that might be another option to explore as well. Cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm taking a look at this now, and this definitely looks pretty interesting. I mean, the thing that's kind of the the tricky part is just you know making sure that you are uh, batching together your items within a task that goes to Turk, and figuring out how to include like multiple of your items in a task, and like getting the results back to a specific item and and stuff like that. But yeah, this looks super interesting, and you know as they've built out their APIs and stuff, I'm sure there's more and more ways to get integrated. You know, in a lot of ways, this kind of reminds me of like Fiverr on steroids. Yeah, I, yeah, I guess it is. I like to say it's like uh, like mini TaskRabbit online. <laughs> yeah, Fiverr's turned into a proper marketplace, though, whereas Mechanical Turk, it seems like it's a little more Wild West. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that you uh, approve things programmatically. How do you validate the work you're getting back? That's the tricky part, as I was saying. Um, so we essentially um, kind of determine like, okay, what types of different outputs are we going to look for? So we had anything from text being like a phone, an email, a website, to like different video data, like how many people appeared in this, at what time did something appear in this, etc. So the first thing I would say is just like a lot of like basic tips that you would give for any application, like make it happy for your users, make the UX of the forms straightforward, simple, and use a lot of formatting in your forms to make sure that you're looking at the same information and you get good information in. Again, we did approve all, all work, but that doesn't mean that we like accepted it as truth in our APIs. We're saying that just as like we made sure that whoever filled out our tasks got paid for their stuff immediately. For things like text, we would look for exact text matching, just case insensitive. For things like numeric things, we would like 
have a little thing that calculated the variance and then potentially ask for more decisions from more Turkers to come in for things like video data and time. Also, again, variance and stuff and kind of just asking for more results. We'd also sort of preface our results with some kind of accuracy score. So if we were able to get, you know, good consensus on it, we would confirm it as high accuracy versus if it wasn't, you know, full consensus, we'd probably say, okay, like this is mid or low accuracy. Do you have plans on how to move forward from here? I mean, are there other things you're planning to add in using these features? I do think um, just personally, my specific turking days are behind me. Uh, I do uh, quite you know, enjoy how it was, you know, a part of my non-development career and then how I was able to use it within my skills as a developer to automate it. But it's not something I'm particularly interested in, in anymore. However, there is something that stuck to me about it, about kind of coordinating the resources of people in mass. And I do think it's pretty amazing how, you know, I can make an app that splits up two hours of video into small chunks pay people to look at it all simultaneously and have the results in 20 minutes. Like there, there's something like that, that I think is like really exciting to me. So I think my, my days in the Turk market pass are behind me, but my days of coordinating the efforts of many using software are um, intriguing. Nice. Dave, do you have anything you want to add or ask? No, I'm just fascinated that, I mean, Amazon's just adding just one other thing to not only their controversy, but to their list of services. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And, and as I said, it's it's you know, it's been around for a while and again was in originally an internal tour for them. So um it kind of is like a uh unknown, sort of underknown maybe uh Amazon tool that they offer. So Yeah. Yeah, it's, I, I keep trying to think my in my head how how this might be used in other ways. So but yeah, I mean, I know, I know people at various companies who have kind of developed their own crowdsourcing flows. And it's interesting. Like, again, uh, you know, even outside of Turk, the concepts of developing architecture to coordinate crowdsourcing efforts are probably relevant to a lot of workflows and, and data streams. So for what it's worth. Yep. As a Ruby developer, you've probably used Redis for queuing and caching. But if you're like me, you've never completely understood it. You just followed the tutorial to set it up and then hoped it'd stay up. Now that I'm building my own services for other people, I realize that you and I often don't have the desire or time to run an ops or DevOps team or do it yourself. Plus, since you're not a Redis expert, you're not exactly sure how to know what it's doing. That's why I love Redis Green. No setup. It runs on any AWS region I want so I can run it near me. And the tooling is amazing. I have to tell you about this feature, actually. It actually maps the memory you're using and tells you where all the memory is allocated. So this makes it really easy to see what's going on in your Redis setup. It also runs on AWS, so it scales easily and can alert you when it hits certain thresholds in performance or capacity. Sorry for going all fanboy on you, but I love this tool. Here's the thing. If you don't want to do ops or are already on Heroku or something, then use Redis Green for the rest. It's simple yet powerful. Check them out at redisgreen.net. All right, well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Dave, do you want to start us off with picks? Yeah, sure. So my first pick is, it's a company called Hatchbox, and they produce filament for 3D printers. And I've been testing and playing around with 3D printers for some time now. I only have one device, but I kind of stopped doing it for the past three years just because I wasn't able to get quality prints. 
And so even more recently, I was printing out like a little Chewbacca for my son and it just, it was not working. I probably tried 10, 15 times and it kept crapping out. So finally, I did some research and found that Hatchbox makes really good filaments and tried it out. And so far, I've gotten 10 solid prints in a row. Nice. Yeah, I keep wanting to get into 3D printing, but I have so many other things going on. <laughs> I'm going to throw out a couple of picks. Um, I'm going to mention my book again, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Like I said, it should be relatively inexpensive on Amazon, but it's experience from coaching a whole bunch of people into finding a job. So it should help you out. I am also taking feedback and you know, we'll plan on updating it probably over the next few weeks. You know, as I hear that there are different, you know, formatting issues or something, if there are any in there. So yeah, let me know. But yeah, the two other picks. The first one is so and let me back up. So do either of you know what movie the song White Christmas first appeared in? I do not know. Nope. So there's a movie out there called White Christmas that has the song White Christmas in it, and it's sung by Bean Crosby, who originally sang it. And that's not the movie that it first appeared in, but it's a terrific movie. And so I'm going to pick it anyway. I've been picking these Christmas movies. You'll be getting them over the next few weeks. But yeah, it, it's a fun movie. It's got Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye in it, or kind of the two lead guys in it. It's a fun story, a lot of music and dancing and just, just fun, fun stuff. And so, uh, yeah, it was made in 1954. Anyway, it's one of those classics that you kind of have to watch every year. So I'm going to pick that amazing movie. The song White Christmas actually first appeared in Holiday Inn, which is another movie with Bing Crosby in it. Bing Crosby and Fred Astaire are in that one. Uh, again, lots of dancing and singing and, you know, uh, it's, it's a very fun movie. It has a Christmas focus because it, it, you know, covers holidays, but it's not strictly speaking, I guess, a Christmas movie, but that's when we usually watch it around here. So um, that one's made in 1942. Anyway, those two movies are some of my favorite Christmas movies. I picked a couple others last week. I've got more. So uh, hang in there. Uh, we'll, we'll be uh, giving you all kinds of stuff to watch on Christmas. Yeah, my very, very favorite Christmas movie, I think, was made in 1984. But yeah, all the rest of them I'm going to pick are going to be older than that. So just keep that in mind as you're, you're looking at it. And uh, I hope you enjoy your holidays. Andrew, do you have some picks for us? Yes. Well, I'd have to probably throw some some picks to um, people within the Ruby Rails world that I use on a daily or near, near daily basis, just on some maybe underknown stuff. But I've noticed that I go to the site forgoodsturftime.com on almost a daily basis for some <laughs> uh, date and time formatting stuff and for a chuckle in the name, which I which I'm digging. So shout out to Mike Buckby, who I've uh, never met, but use his tool on a frequent basis and um, always gives me a little smile when I'm wrangling some date time messiness in Rails. Nice. All right, Andrew, if people want to find you on the internet, where do they find you? I'm on Twitter, Andrew Glass One. You can hit me on Instagram, also Andrew Glass One. And for sure, if you want to reach out for anything about Turk, Guinness World Records, tennis, talk about the Turk, which was the 18th century chess automation playing device that uh, Mechanical Turk was named after that would really thrill me. Hit me up on my website, andyglass.co. Awesome. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap this one up. Thanks for coming, Andrew. Yeah, it was fun talking to you. Hey, thank you, Charles and Dave. I really appreciate you guys for inviting me.
Yeah, it's been a fun conversation. And yeah, we'll uh, wrap this one up. And until the next one, max out, everybody. Talk to you later. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.